Hey friends, Pastor Andrew here. Thanks for taking the time to listen in on our sermons here at Asheville First Church of the Nazarene. We post these even though they were preached in a specific time at a specific place to a certain community of people, hoping that God still might use them to speak to you wherever you are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Uh, for your coming into this world, and we celebrate it, Lord. We're looking forward to it again, and uh, so we just pray that your strength might be upon us as we wait during this Advent season, and may you be with this time of reading of your scripture and a proclaiming of your word, Lord. May your spirit turn these words into the music of the gospel for us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Ezra, the book of Ezra, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and chapter 3, so we'll start off in, in chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to go to chapter 3 and uh, read about verses 1 through 13. Uh, last week when we were together, uh, we looked at the passage from Isaiah and we, we heard the good news that Israel has been in exile, but God was going to make a way back home for them, uh, that there would be a highway into the desert, make straight the way of the Lord, uh, that God may bring ransomed Israel back home into the promised land. And so now in Ezra, we are not looking at prophecy, we're looking at history, but we're looking at the history of how that happened, what that looked like when they got home. And so in chapter 1, we're going to see um, Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, making his decree, sending Israel home. And then we are going to look in chapter 3 and see kind of what they did uh, when they went home. Uh, just a kind of a reminder, uh, as we look at this text, as, as we consider this, um, not everybody left Israel. So there was a, like we talked about last week, there was a good population of Israel that was left behind in the exile. People had to still take care of the land. Uh, what the empires would do, they would send some of their own people over so the people would kind of intermingle, um, and we see that. But also, when uh, Israel goes into exile, some people get scattered throughout the known world, throughout the empire, right? Not all of them go to Babylon. And then not everyone comes home immediately. So when we talk about homecoming, we're going to talk about the homecoming today that they get back to Israel. Realizes, and if you read Ezra and you get into numbers, you realize that they kind of list out everybody who came back is in the thousands of people. And so it was a slow uh, time of coming back home. Uh, and in fact, that Ezra, who we're looking at the book of Ezra today, uh, Ezra doesn't come back till another generation after what we're looking at today. Uh, so Ezra's family stayed in Babylon uh, for many years, right? You can say, well, boy, how, why would you stay there? Why, why wouldn't you just run? Well, you know, it, it's kind of when you've built a life somewhere in Israel, a lot of Israelites had built a life in Babylon. It's hard to, you know, get up. I mean, my great-grandparents uh, came over from Italy and if somebody said, you know, boy, you got to go back to Italy, I'd say, I've made a life here. You know, I don't speak Italian. And uh, for, for many of the Israelites, it would have kind of been that reality. They would have been born and raised in Babylon. Uh, and so just some context for this homecoming, if you will. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that. They're, they're coming back uh, to the promised land. 
Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of those among you who are his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors and whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, with his kin, set out to build the altar of God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up on the altar, on its foundation, because they were in dread of the neighboring peoples, and they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord, morning and evening. And they kept the festival of booths, as prescribed, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the ordinance as required each day. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the sacred festivals of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrenes to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from King Cyrus of Persia. Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites heads of the families, old people who had, been, who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it, it really is a grand homecoming. If you can imagine, and as we talked about last week, we can hardly imagine the feeling of coming back home uh, for this generation of Israelites. They had been in exile uh, for 40 to 50 years. 
and they, some of them had never seen the home country. They had never seen uh, the land of Israel. So they're coming home, and, and just kind of like you do when you come home, uh, you know, if you're like me, you come home from a big trip, and I just got to get settled. I just got to do everything right. You know, I got to put my clothes up. I can't relax till I put my clothes up. I got to get all my toiletries out. You just kind of got to set everything to right. Am I, maybe I'm OCD. I'm, not, I'm seeing some blank stares, you know, just uh, maybe you can't connect with that. But Israel and their homecoming, they're doing everything right. We, we read a long list there of all the sacrifices they were making. Uh, they started, they came home and they said, okay, we've learned our lesson. We are going to do things right. We are going to sacrifice the Lord. We are going to only worship God, Yahweh, our Lord. Uh, we are going to do it right. And so that's what they're doing when they come back. They're, they're sacrificing. They're building an altar. They're doing it right. And yet they realize uh, that, you know, you can't just keep on sacrificing out in the field to, to have a proper worship. Uh, we need to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so we see, we saw kind of the preparations for making the temple. Uh, the people start giving the money to build the temple. That, that's a change. Before they went into exile, the kings would build the temples. David and Solomon, they paid out of, you know, the, the royal treasury to build the, but now it's a work of the people. The people are taking on the ownership and leadership and building the temple to God. So they, they take up the offering, but they're also trying to keep in line with how it was done before. And that's why we see some of those details about the Sidonians and the, the trees, the cedars from Lebanon. That's the same way that they built it the first time. And so they're trying to match what happened the first time, match the glory and the intent of the first temple as they build it. When they come back, oh man, they're gonna do it right. I mean, this is really special to rebuild the temple of God. We talked about in exile, they lost the two most important and precious things to the people of Israel. It was the, the royal dynasty that David would have an heir sitting on the throne forever and ever that was taken away from them for that time. They, they were under captivity. Uh, and now, even now, they know they're not going to get that back. Um, as we see, King Cyrus is benevolent. He sends them back. That God was working through his reign to send them back. But they're still going to be... Uh, under his thumb a little bit. He was, you know, the Babylonians, they were hard taskmasters. Uh, they, they thought they're going to quell rebellions by taking you into captivity and destroying every, your faith and your religion. But uh, the Persians were kind of benevolent taskmasters, but taskmasters all the same. They would let you go back. They would let you rebuild your temple. They'd let you have your own faith as long as you sent them some payments of tribute every now and then. Uh, but he was still going to be king. So right now they still weren't going to get back their autonomy and the, the royal reign. But what we see here is they are getting back the temple. And that is so precious to the Israelites. Why is that so precious? It is because not only is it a place to worship, not only is it, oh, it's nice to have a sanctuary, the temple for the Israelites was really the meeting place between heaven and earth. The temple truly was where the presence of God dwelled for them. Um, and so it was this not only important place to worship, but it was that place where heaven and earth came together, where Israel could communicate and, and worship and connect with God. And so to rebuild the temple is just 
an amazing thing. I mean, it's just, they, you can see some of the Levites and the priests, they were dreaming of this day and what a joyous day it would have been. And we, as we read in the text in chapter 3, they all come together, right? And that you can see that ceremonial laying of the cornerstone, laying of the foundation, and all the priests, they're in their priestly garbs. Everyone's dressed up. You can see the trumpets. The people are, are shouting for joy. They're singing responsibly. They're, they're declaring the good, the honest gospel truth about who God is. God's faithfulness, loving faithfulness endures forever. What a joyous time. I mean, just, I can't think of anything happier. And yet, in this beautiful story, we hear people shouting for joy. It's, I mean, just everything they had hoped for is coming to fruition. And yet, the people some of the older folks in the congregation, they remember seeing the first temple laid on its foundation. They remember seeing it sit on its foundation. They wouldn't have been old enough to see it laid on its foundation, uh, but they would have seen it sitting on the foundation, meaning they would have probably been over 70 years old. And they don't shout for joy. They weep. And they don't just shed a tear or two, the scripture says that the weeping, the sound of weeping matched that of the cries for joy. And so that you couldn't tell between the two, there was such a great outcry of the joy and the weeping. Why do you think they were weeping? For once, that's not a rhetorical question. You just, why do you think they were weeping? Scripture does, it says they were weeping, it doesn't give us an explicit reason why they were weeping. Why do you think anybody want to take a... I don't, there's no right answer. Because they lost the first temple. Because the pain of losing the first temple. And so they're remembering that. Right. Yeah, that's a good... Any other thoughts? They remembered their sin. They remembered their sin. So they're thinking about they were the reason that it had to be torn down in the first place. That they cause this in essence. Yeah, good point. Anybody else? Um, you know, we don't know. Uh, both of those are, uh, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, they they re- realized that they were the cause of this pain. Uh, they, they remembered the first one. Perhaps it didn't match the, the glory and the beauty of the first one. Perhaps they're thinking about all the people that wanted to see this and didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, Maybe they're thinking about the people that died in the exile, that were killed by the Babylonians. Um, There's a a number of possibilities of why so many people would be crying out during this time. Such a joyous time, and yet also full of weeping. I think uh, for many of us during this Advent season, uh, this story is incredibly honest about our experience of joy and sorrow. Um, often we think the two are completely separate, but I think in our real lives, most of us experience the two intertwined. Um, 
especially during this Advent season. We, we think of it as such a, a joyful time, and it, it is. We are talking this Sunday, this third Sunday of Advent, of the joy of the coming of the Lord and what that means for us. And yet for many of us, the reality is, is that it's a, also a difficult time, even with the joy. Uh, perhaps for those very reasons, we are thinking about the brokenness in our life or our family's lives. Um, perhaps we are thinking about those loved ones that can't be celebrating with us. Uh, perhaps we are um, just faced with the reality of sickness and suffering during the season when, where we'd rather not be. Uh, but this story in Ezra of the people of God uh, weeping and crying for joy at the same time, I think speaks so clearly to not only human life, but to our spiritual lives. There's a, a poet, I'd never heard of him uh, before this week in researching for this sermon, uh, but I stumbled upon a portion of his poem that speaks to this so beautifully. He was a poet named William Blake. He was an English poet um, from a few centuries ago. But he wrote these lines. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. Uh, William Blake was saying there that in our life that Joy and woe are woven very closely together oftentimes, and that really is the clothing for our soul, that our lives are made up both with joys and sorrows, but they aren't just separated. They are woven together to make up the very fabric of our soul. And I think this applies so clearly, as I said, to our spiritual lives and even to the gospel message. If you think about that holy night, that we are anticipating in the Advent season, the night that our Lord came to the earth. And I know as we talked about this in Bible study Wednesday night, and we see it beautified, and, and we just think, oh, what a holy, clear night, and we celebrate it. But if you, if you think about it, and Mary and Joseph, they, they were full of joy. It was a, they knew what was happening. They knew the, the weight and the glory of it. But at the same time, can you not imagine what it must have been like not to find any room in the inn, to be in a town without any friends or family, to bear the Son of God into the world by yourself, and to be surrounded by animals because you couldn't even find a place suitable for humans to stay. Can you talk about joy and woe being woven fine? And in fact, I wonder if all of us could go back knowing what we know now, if we were allowed the chance, just like the shepherds, to go and stand by that manger, to witness Jesus Christ come to earth on that holy night, I wonder if half of us might cry for joy, sing hallelujah, just shout God's praises, be so happy. But I wonder if some of us might stand by the manger seeing that innocent baby lying there, God in the flesh, and we might weep. We might weep because we realize what is waiting for this child. 
that we might weep because it was our sin that caused this child to go on and to suffer, to be beaten, betrayed, abused, tortured, and crucified for us. That I think even on that holy night, it would be right for us to weep knowing what this child would grow into. God in the flesh would suffer and endure what is waiting for him on Good Friday. We might do well to weep as well. That in the story of Christmas, in the story in the gospel of Christ, that we can see how joy and woe, they are woven fine in the very foundation of God coming to us. Why? Because of our sin. Because of the evil in the world and the brokenness of the world that when God comes to us, it is joyful. It is amazing. But there's also sadness in it that God came to us not only to bring us back home because, but because he had to take care of our sin. He had to take care of the evil in the world. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. So pastor, is that, is that all it is? Is, is life just made up of, of joys and sorrows and we can never break the two apart from each other? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply speaking to the reality of the life we face in it. But as I said, we face that reality not because of God's work or God's doing. It's because of our sin, uh, of our brokenness in the world, that our joys and our sorrows are so intertwined. But thankfully, the joy of Christ's coming is because Christ came to handle just that problem that sorrow and, and death and sickness and sin and brokenness were haunting our every step, our very existence. And so Jesus Christ came into the world to break the power of sin over us. That Jesus' coming means that that power of sin, that power of woe and darkness that haunts our every step, that infiltrates every joyous occasion, that power of sin might be broken forever and ever. That's what we believe in the coming of Jesus Christ, that in the cross and in the resurrection, he broke the power of sin. He broke the power of evil and the power of death forever and ever that we might truly be saved. I like to think of it like this, and I'm going to keep with the metaphor of clothing, if you will, um, that William Blake introduces to us. You know, being a, being a parent, that, that we, we get a lot of stains. Um, Desmond, he, he likes ketchup with his uh, chicken nuggets and his tater tots, but often the ketchup becomes finger paint and it kind of just gets everywhere, right? Um, and I, now I've kind of wised up, and I usually take a shirt off before it gets the ketchup, right? Uh, but you can't do that everywhere. Um, but often he'll get into the ketchup, and he'll get it on his shirt, and, uh, you know, what do you have to do with the ketchup? You, you can't just let it sit there. Right? It'll just keep making problems worse. It'll bleed through his shirt. It, it, you, you can't just let the ketchup sit on the shirt, right? You have to get a sponge. You have to get a wash rag and go and wipe and dab the ketchup up. You have to take care of the problem, don't you, right? 
That's what we believe happened in Jesus Christ, that we had made a mess of the world, that we had slung ketchup everywhere and our our clothes were stained with ketchup. And so Christ comes into the world and he breaks the power of sin. He he takes care of the problem. Christ comes in the world and, and removes the ketchup from our lives, that he breaks the power of that stain. And that's the good news. That's the joy that for the first time in our lives, we can be set free. That we can really be free from the power of sin. That it's not just words. That our lives can be made better. For the first time in the history of humanity, something new has taken place. Something beautiful has taken place. We're not just the result of all of our brokenness. We're not just the result of all the mess we've made that Christ came in and can remove that ketchup from us, right? But what happens after I've done that, after I've taken care of the problem, I've wiped up the ketchup, there's still, even if you do a really good job wiping it up, there's still a a hint or a stain on that shirt, right? And that's the reality we're talking about this morning. That's why even for us who have been set free from the power of sin, those of us who are living in Christ and do have that joy, even now in this existence, this side of the end, this side of God's coming, we still experience joy and sorrow intermingled. Why? Because there's still the stain of sin on this world and on our lives. This is why we still get sick. This is why we still will get cancer. This is why our loved ones will die. This is why, uh, you know, I'm not the perfect husband, right? We still have the stain of sin that hasn't finally fully been removed. The problem's been taken care of. The ketchup's been removed. But the stain of sin is still on this world. That the world still has suffering in it. It still has injustice in it. And so, and also in Advent, we are reminded that we are looking forward to the second coming of Christ that the joy is that it's not always going to be like that. The joy is that one day that stain is finally going to be removed. So what do I do, you know, with Desmond's clothes, even after the stain? I've taken care of the problem, right? The stain's not spreading. It's not making it worse. That's good news, right? But what do I got to do now that there's been a stain on that shirt? Well, you got to wash it, Right? You got to wash it in something powerful, don't you? You got to get OxyClean or something, really, to get the. This isn't an infomercial. I'm not going to start, you know. I should maybe get some royalties or something mentioned in that. Um, you know, you got to wash it in something powerful, don't you, to finally remove the stain. What do we say? White as snow, white as wool. Well, we're thinking of that last day. You might say, Pastor, why are you talking so much about Revelation and, and Advent? Because Advent, I mean, in the church calendar, it is, for us, it is more about the coming, the second coming of the Lord. We are thinking about the first coming, but it is calling us to the second coming of the Lord, right? We are looking forward, and that's why we talk about Revelation and Advent. And in Revelation chapter 7, John the Revelator, he looks, and he sees people robed in all white. And he asks the angel, who are those? Who are those people, God's elect, that are standing in all white? He said, those are the ones that have come out of the great ordeal 
Those are God's saints. And they are the ones that have washed their robe in the blood of the Lamb. What John sees at the very end is the fate for all of those who believe and follow Christ, that in the end, we will wash our robes in something very powerful. We will wash our robes in the blood of Christ, and they will come out, and they will be white as new, white as snow, that finally, finally, in the end, the stain of sin will be removed forever that there won't be any more sorrow, there won't be any more tears or sickness or death there because not only has the power of sin already been broken, but the stain of sin will be removed on our lives and in the world. That no more will joy and woe be woven fine for we will have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and be set free completely. All of existence, a new heaven and a new earth. This is the joy of the Advent season. That yes, Jesus' coming meant that he broke the power of sin, the ketchup's been removed, but also the joy of Advent is one day we're gonna be able to wash the clothes of our soul into the blood of the Lamb and the stain will be gone forever. It won't even be remembered that we will have a new existence. So that means for us is, yeah, I, I hate to tell you that even as a Christian, believe me, I, I believe as a Christian, life gets better and easier. There is joy in that. Um, when the, ke- the stain of the, the ketchup has been removed from the shirt, oh boy, life is much simpler and easier. I'm not having to worry about drama. I'm not carrying the burden of sin and regret. I'm not carrying the burden of hate and resentment and anger. Oh, I'm set free from all that. It's a much more beautiful existence. Oh, thank you, Jesus, right? But we're also going through life, and yeah, we'll still have problems. There won't always be enough money in the bank account. There, there will be sickness. There will be death. There will be brokenness in our families at times. I, I just, I, I want us to know, right? I've realized being a parent of a toddler too, I, I need to warn Desmond what's coming up. And I need to tell us that there will be sorrow and joy intertwined. But the call for us this Sunday on the joy of Advent is that it's not always going to be like that. And I don't want you to get knocked by the wayside. I don't want you to fall into unfaithfulness or or give up because you're caught off guard because there's still sorrow and difficulty in this life. And I don't want you to look at God and say, why? Why? I want you to look at our past of sin and brokenness and say, it's, it's just the stain of sin on this world. But we have been set free from the problem and we are looking forward to the day when the stain is completely removed, that the memory of that ketchup is gone completely and there's a new heaven and a new earth. We are looking forward to that second coming of Christ. But you know what I've also learned being a parent is that I can't just warn Desmond about the things that are coming. I don't just say, hey, there's going to be some hard stuff coming on. Go get him, son. And leave him on his own, do I? No. Like any good parent of a toddler, I go with him. I walk with him. And this also is the true joy of the Advent season. 
that we are celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. That God didn't just come down as gracious as it would be to take care of the problem and leave us back to fend for ourselves. That Jesus came down, took care of the problem, and then said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That once we are in Christ, we don't have to face the stain and the sorrow of this world alone. We don't have to face the difficulties anymore alone. That Christ is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That is the joy that we have the presence of God walking with us. That even though there'll be hardships, even though we'll be reminded of the stain on this world, we're not doing so alone. Christ is walking with us if our hearts are open. We're never alone. God is there with us. And I think this is where, getting back to the story of Ezra in the temple, this is where it comes full circle. Because what did I say the, the temple meant for Israel? The temple was the presence of God on earth. It was the joining of heaven and earth. And for us, this Advent season, we were reminded that Jesus is our temple. That Jesus is the meeting of heaven and earth for all time. In fact, Jesus said this himself. He, they said, hey, Jesus, what sign are you going to give us that you're the Messiah? And what did he say? I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. He was pointing to the fact that the physical temple in Jerusalem isn't no longer the temple of God. The true temple of God, the true meeting place between heaven and earth is in Jesus Christ. That now it, we're not dependent on four walls. We're not dependent on a building that P Babylonians or Canadians can tear down and burn and destroy. That now we have the presence of God walking with us. That we can know God's presence because of Jesus in our lives. Emmanuel, God with us. So my friends, been keeping track with me this morning. There is joy. There is so much good news. But also, I, I want to just give voice to those of us who feel it, and all of us do, that in this life, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. That you will have hardships. But today and every day, we make the choice. Will we face, face the hardships of life on our own? Will we continue making a mess of our lives with sin and brokenness? Or will we entrust our lives to Christ? Will we allow him to remove the power of sin in us? And will we walk with Christ through life's hardships, through the ups and downs, keeping our eyes focused on that glorious day when the stain of sin is finally removed. The joy of Advent is that is all available to us if we will say yes to Christ, if we will trust Him, if we will invest in walking after Christ, invest in the relationship that we can truly have Emmanuel, God with us. That is the true joy of the Christmas season. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much uh, for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for coming into this world to remove the power of sin, 
But thank you for not also leaving us to fend for ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray in these moments as we respond to your word, would you help us to hear from you in these moments? I know for many of us right now, there is joy in life. There is joy during this Advent season. But there's also great woe and sorrow represented in this room. And many of us are carrying a heavy burden. Many of us might be shedding tears during this season for a a myriad of reasons. And so, Lord, I pray that that sorrow and that difficulty wouldn't draw us further away from you, but it would actually draw us closer to you. That we would put our trust in you during these moments. That we would receive your presence and your comfort in our lives, calling us to a deeper relationship calling us to look forward and trust in the day where the stain will finally be removed. So speak to us now. Show us your presence and your will for our lives in these moments and may the elements of communion be for us the presence of Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As our servers come down and and we prepare for a time of prayer and communion, uh, I'd simply ask you to open your heart and to be honest with God. I think some of us think we just have to come to God and, and just be happy in our conversation with God. But God sees our heart. God knows our heart. And this may be for some of us a time to, to pour out our, our sorrow to God. Uh, to ask for direction and help in the difficulty of life. And for some of us, we need to recover the joy because perhaps we've been overcome with the sorrows of life And we've forgotten the joy in the presence of Christ and the hope of Christ of being set free from the power and yet still looking forward to that day when it's completely wiped away. So take this moment and let it be just some time for us to commune with God, to share the joy and the sorrow that are woven so fine. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion. All that we ask is that you've said yes to Christ, that you've committed your life to following Christ, that his presence is walking with you. And we believe if if you come down, receive the bread and drink of the cup, this is for us a means of grace. This is for us the presence of Christ, food for the journey. This is God walking with us in the joys and the sorrows. Then I'd invite you to pray at an altar. You can pray before you partake in communion. You can pray after. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'd be happy to pray with you. I can uh, anoint you on your behalf of yourself or loved one. But let us all just reach out to God in these moments and put our hope and find our joy in Christ. On the night our Lord was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat whenever you do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink whenever you do in remembrance of me. When you are ready, come receive the joy of Christ. Church family, would you stand with me?
Joy and woe are woven fine. And I know many of us know that all too well. But I hope you hear the good news this morning. Our joy is found surely within Christ. That we have been set free and there is coming a day when the stain of sin will be completely removed forever. So may you live into that joy. May you live into that good news and share it with all who you find. Thanks for listening in today. I hope God continues to speak to you in the days to come and that you find whatever is the next step for you in your life. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website at ashnaz.org or feel free to stop by the church anytime. We'd love to see you. God bless.